Well, I'm live at the Red House with a man who has been brought up in multiple of the episodes of Uh-oh. Red House that we've recorded so far. Every slander. Musician. It's all slander, I'm <laughs> telling you. Every musician in the area knows him, Mr. Doug Davis. Hi. Thanks for coming over. Thanks for having me. This is great. So I'm going to ask you, uh, I'm going to start it out the way that I kind of don't like to start it out, but I just I just want to know. Uh, I want to hear just like your bio and how you got <laughs> into this mess of music anyway. Yeah. Uh, okay, let's let's go through this as uh, fast and as uh, unboring as we possibly can. Uh, born in the wilds of uh, nor- of Ohio in 1967, uh, um, grew up in Charlotte. Uh, good, solid suburban uh, middle class upbringing. Came up here to go to Wake, um, uh, just like Andy, I guess, one of those guys. Um, and uh, I'm an only child. Grew up in Charlotte, um, you know, I, I, I studied piano when I was a kid, uh, picked up the guitar around 13, but I, uh, it was just a musical waste, suburban wasteland, 80s. I grew up on all the worst 80s music. <laughs> I had no older brothers, uh, I went to a pretty small school and nobody was into anything uh, good then, so I, I grew up on all the terrible uh, 80s music. I came in, up here moved in next door to the um, station manager of WAKE, uh, the college radio station, the, the small college radio station at, at Wake Forest. And uh, immediately, within a couple weeks, I was in the midst of all this, um, you know, that was the age of, uh, you know, REM recording up here and Mitch Easter and the DBs. There was this college music, underground music scene going on around here. That, I, and there was a lot of stuff going on in Charlotte, but I wasn't privy to it. Mm-hmm. Um, and suddenly my musical outlook completely changed, joined college bands, did the whole thing. Um, so that was a pretty formative experience for me. Um, went to grad school at Wake, largely so I could still be in school and keep playing in bands. Um, so that was that was where it really kind of all started. Um, I... Here's where things get murky a little bit. During my um, uh, grad school days, um, I had some friends. You know, we were all playing in, uh, you know, original music bands around here. And uh, some of them had had this ridiculous idea. Uh, they were going to go out and play some shows. They were going to, uh, this was the early 90s, uh, and everybody was kind of getting into the grunge thing. Uh, I said, we're going to put on, uh, uh, just for for laughs, we're going to put on parachute pants and dig out all of our synthesizers and play Gary Newman covers. I thought, well, that kind of sounds like fun. You know, mm-hmm. that would be funny. Um, and that grew into a, um, uh, a an un, completely unexpectedly successful cover band situation, um, which is kind of how I inadvertently got uh, onto the dark path in life. Uh, I live this weird schizophrenic music life still, as as you know, I'm sure. Um, so that was kind of how I got off on that path a little bit. Moved to New York for about five years. Um, played music up there. Had a little touring band um, up there. We were not a good band, but my bandmate had gotten the first digital workstation uh, that I had ever encountered. Mm. So that was where we uh, first got our uh, first taste of cakewalk and then pro tools and all that sort of thing and uh, it turns out we were not a very good band but we made a very good production team together so that was where we started learning that so 
um, started recording our friends' bands. Same story everybody has, but uh, but it was right there at the beginning of, of computer-based stuff being sort of semi-affordable. Yeah. Um, so did that for a while. Um, well, we're still doing that now, but at a certain point, uh, our friend John Fifner, you know John? I'm not sure. We, we could talk for hours about John. John's great. John, uh, now he does a lot of work with uh, Mitch Easter over at the Fidelitorium. And, but he had a studio uh, in Winston, and he was moving out of his studio. We were on the road, uh, still in New York, um, and uh, we were having to move out of our apartment. Anyway, it was just good time. He said, y'all want to come take over my studio? Um, and uh, I was dating a girl down here who's now my wife. Um, just seemed like good timing, so we were theoretically still a New York touring band, but we just happened to live down here, um, and then that just sort of, you know, followed its natural course. And, mm. um, so we're still recording all the time, and uh, uh, that's that's the day job, um, and uh, been been playing in bands and doing all the whole thing down here ever since then. Yeah. <clears throat> So your day job is recording music, and then your night job is performing music. Is that yeah. safe to say? Get to do a little bit of everything. Yeah, I'm uh, I'm easily uh, easily bored, so have to keep uh, keep it diverse. <laughs> Which you do. You have a lot of different entities. You do it all. You got. Uh, you're somebody who actually. It seems like anyway. Uh, you like thoroughly enjoy doing cover bands and co- different styles of cover bands, and having like a big music network and community, and also original music. You kind of do the whole thing. Yeah. Um, well, I, you know, I, I took a long time to finally commit to being a full-time musician. I think I hedged my bets into well into my 30s. And, um, you know, I think at, at any age that's a frightening thing. But for me, um, you know, there was definitely a period of thinking, how can I make this work? You know, I, I had not... You know, I'd been out playing the original music, touring a little bit, um, but certainly had not had any big success with that. So trying to figure out how can I do that? Um, how can I continue to do that? How can I continue to produce and do studio work, um, but still hedge my bets and have um, something that I can depend on? Um, so, you know, my whole life has been sort of trying to balance out how can I do some of the working band stuff and still do all the things that I really love to do. Um, and, and how can I do that work in a way that um, can still be satisfying on some level? Um, and, I, you know, it can be pretty soulless work sometimes, and it can be, um, you know, it takes a certain kind of mentality. Um, and I think I've, I've negotiated those waters as best as I can. I think I've, I've found ways to to handle all that but uh it's it's always a balancing act yeah uh oh shoot well uh so i guess when you were telling me sort of your background as as biased as it might sound when i hear anybody like goes to a school like wake forest and ends right. up being a musician i'm sure. a little bit surprised by it i don't think of higher education as always like uh bringing about a lot of cur- uh, creativity in sure. somebody yeah so i guess was whatever you went to school for and all that was that kind of part of also the realm that you were in prior to diving into music more no fully? that's that's a great question um that's it, funny when i i mean i when i think back on being a, a wake forest guy um you know i had a lot of great experiences at wake and um 
you know, I certainly grew up on a path that, that led me sort of naturally to a, a place like Wake Forest. But as soon as I got to Wake, um, you know, I think a lot of people's conceptions of a school like that are, are right on target. Um, you know, it was a very conservative school, very, um, you know, most of the folks that I knew there were on a path to, uh, you know, being doctors and lawyers. And yeah. um, it was not a, um, it was not a school of the arts kind of thing. Um, but in some ways, um, that was really uh, helpful for me. I think there, you know, we had a, a very small group of people that were interested in certain kinds of music and in uh, certain ways of thought, um, certainly a more artsy community within this larger community that wasn't always very welcoming to that sort of thing. I think that can be very helpful. You know, you put your back up against the wall and, um, you know, you go to uh, frat parties and play replacements covers and, you know, whatever it is that you, you have to work a little harder to establish yourself as um, as an individual and as somebody that may not be um, a part of the mainstream sensibility of the school. Right. So, um, so the group of people that uh, very close knit group of friends uh, in college, I think um, it was a very, very creative, smart, diverse group of people. Um, I say diverse in, in the sense of the eighties, uh, a very uh, waspy school, but uh, in terms <laughs> of modes of thought, um, yeah. Uh, it was a very, a very good time for me. I, I learned a lot and uh, really kind of came out of my suburban Charlotte shell a little bit. Yeah. And yeah, I mean, that, that makes a lot of sense when you say it that way. And of course, I'm just like some Winston guy who has like this weird uh, bias against Wake Forest. Uh, no, I, and listen, no I get it. I totally get it. Yeah. But I've met a lot of great people <laughs> from, <laughs> well, from Wake Forest. I, yeah. I mean, I, the people that came out of Wake, uh, that had to choose a slightly more creative, more interesting path. I think, uh, I think, uh, there's some, some really amazing people that I know that came yeah. out of that. So I've known some weirdos uh, that went to Wake Forest, like very yeah. interesting, cool people. You yeah. Know, it's, it's, uh, it's of course when you're being cynical, looking at it from the outside. Oh, that's a bummer. Uh-oh. Facebook. When oh. you're being cynical, looking at it from, <laughs> from the outside and just wanting to be critical of it. It's one thing, but yeah. of, of course, and, uh, and, uh, and I also, you know, get to hear sometimes about all the musical geniuses and film geniuses that are connected to that school that are super artistic and creative. It's just a weird category. I have yeah. them in, in my head as, as not a part of the arts, but like well, institutions like that are. Listen, as critical as you think you were, I mean, on the outside, you know, we were the same way on the inside, definitely. You know, we would look around at all the people around us and think, this is not me. This is not us, mm-hmm. you know, so, um, you know, it's kind of like. Uh, we cer- I certainly didn't go into it with this attitude, but at a certain point it was, you know, going into the lion's den and, you know, like, okay, well, we're not going to be like that. We're going to forge our own identities and something different. So, yeah, but so, I still get that. Yeah. Well, okay. Let's jump to this. Uh, you know, my old buddy, John Luce is in New York. Uh, and I don't know what his, I don't really fully know very much at all about, about what his experience has been like up there as a musician. Yeah. But, I'd like, I guess I wouldn't mind hearing a little bit more about hmm. what what you did up there. 
Yeah. Um, well, I was an English major at WIG, uh, and so there was a part of me, and I, I got a master's in English, uh, so there's a part of me that uh, had intended to go up and get into publishing. Mm. Um, and, and that was definitely a real intention, but it was also sort of a, you know, I, I went to New York to experience New York, and I was just getting out of that particular band. That band had uh, run its course, and um, so I was 24, 25, um, with nothing on my plate, and I thought, you know, this is, this is the time. This is when you do something stupid like this. Um, <laughs> New York, for me, was, um, I, I say this all the time, anybody who's had a conversation with me has heard me say this, but New York, for me, was a great, great place to be a music fan and a terrible place to be a musician, mm. um, you know, and, and often for the same reasons. You know, on any given night, any of your musical idols are probably playing. So, you know, why are any of your friends going to spend... $15 cover charge to come see your little band play when, you know, you know, on any given night, this is in the, in the nineties, you know, late nineties. So, you know, Radiohead's playing here and Blur's over here and Elliot Smith is uh, in the village. And, you know, why are you going to pay $15 to go see your friend's cover band? Mm -hmm. Our friends, not cover band. I was not playing any covers then. Um, so, uh, it was tough to get anything going. And, uh, we lived in, I lived in Brooklyn the whole time. Um, and that entire early 2000s Brooklyn, you know, explosion of bands, I never saw any of that. I mean, mm. that was a, maybe just slightly afterwards, but that whole sense of community, it, it was so logistically difficult to be a band in New York that I just, there wasn't a lot of time and energy for the kind of community building that you know even in Winston people we can all complain about uh, the Winston music scene or any any small town music scene but in New York it's not that everybody's cutthroat it's not that everybody is hating on everybody else but there's just you no know, time for anything else you know um, yeah. it's just logistically difficult to do anything so the idea of sharing spaces and getting a show going or hanging out with your friends bands or you know I, I never saw any of that, mm. you know, when I was there. So that makes some sense. I've always wondered how uh, bands get like drum sets across town in New York. Yeah, if you're not driving, which I, oh well, it's yeah. you know, uh, a lot of clubs do have uh, clubs and rehearsal spaces do have backline. So that was something you could kind of get used to. I remember, uh, well, you you'll appreciate this, but uh, uh, you would go into any rehearsal space or practice room, and there would always be a There'd always be a Fender Twin. There'd always be an AC30. There'd always be a uh, JCM800 half stack. And then there would be a little uh, uh, rolling jazz chorus. Mm. And you learn pretty quickly, always go for the jazz chorus. Because those two amps were always going to be blown out. They would always be blown out. And the crappy little solid state amp was going to be the same. Every, it was going to be crappy, <laughs> but it was going to be the same every time. Mm. So um, you, you learn to deal with the stuff like that. Yeah. But our drummer, the drummer, the, uh, my, my uh, studio partner, he ended up starting to play stand-up with a, he had a little electronic, uh, like a part of a TD7 kit, but he would just bring the kick, the electronic kick, and then he'd bring a snare and a couple of cymbals, because that was what he could fit in a cab, mm. easy. Yeah. So, um, 
you know, you come up with your own solutions. Right. That's pretty fun. What would, uh, that band, did y'all put out anything? Did you ever talk? What was that band called? We, it was a band called Kingfly. Uh, we put out uh, two official albums. Um, it was, you know, we were sort of a power pop band. Anon, um, Anon is my studio partner, uh, and he was in that band. He and I came from completely different uh, musical backgrounds, and uh, he was he was a bit of a metalhead, um, and I was definitely doing a lot more uh, power pop back in the day, um, and a little more singer songwriter kind of stuff. Um, so we would find our common ground. You know, there was always the Beatles. There was always um, you know, we, we, we spent a lot of time with stuff like Cheap Trick and Squeeze, something kind of in the middle. We could all deal with that. So it was, we were trying to do something like that. Um, we just, uh, we just weren't very good <laughs> and we did our best and, uh, we had a good time. Um, but we, uh, I think also at the time, both of us were not, um, not real singers, kind of learning our, learning how to, find a voice of some sort, mm-hmm. um, which I'm still doing 30 years later, but it's, they say um, it takes a while. Yeah. So it comes naturally for some people. <laughs> uh, but anyway, the, the good thing that came out of it is that we, uh, you know, we got into the recording thing. So. Yeah. All right. So the main question I think I, I knew before you got here, I knew I would ask you is now, so you've, you came to Winston and started doing production and stuff here. And what I think you've been in the music scene here for so long and you're so heavily involved in it i think uh given especially given the situation we're in right now in the mm. state of the world i'm curious about just like what all changes you've seen uh in the last however long that you've been here sort of the way you've seen the, the scene itself kind of change and also uh i guess we'll 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 get to the second part of that like the coronavirus mm-hmm. hit on the second end yeah so yeah uh the, how have you seen i guess can I guess we could just talk about what the scene was like when you first started working in in Winston right. in the Winston area, and then what it how it adjusted over time. Yeah, and I'm I'm definitely uh, so old that I've seen, you know, been through a number of different iterations of that. So it's a little it's a little hard to process that on a continuum, um, but I can definitely speak to it in terms of um, you know different time periods. Um, the '80s, late '80s, when I first got here. Um, it was just an amazing time, really good. And, you know, we were obviously insulated by the whole, um, you know, Wake Forest thing. But I think as musicians, um, my little group of friends, you know, we got out of that Wake bubble a lot more than other folks did. And so once we kind of all graduated, um, it was sort of a seamless movement out into the community a little bit. But there was so much going on. Um, When I came here... I think my first couple of weeks in school, um, I ventured across the road to what was then the, I guess it was still calling it the White Horse, uh, but it was the first iteration of Ziggy's. So not even what you might know as the old Ziggy's down there on Beatty Street, but it used to be, that the little white house used to be across the street. Mm. And, um, and I went over there and saw um, the right profile. Uh, which is uh, it was Jeff Foster's band, Jeffrey Dean Foster, and uh, John Worcester, you know, who's been playing with Bob Mould and the Mountain Goats forever. Um, and Stephen Dubner was the other guy in the band, the guy that now is very well known for doing the Freakonomics radio mm-hmm. um, 
So anyway, they had a very successful band called The Right Profile. They were playing um, on that little patio, and I said, this is, this is amazing. I've never gotten this. You know, what seems now, you know, kind of obvious, you know, going out and seeing a local band play out on a patio. Right. You know, it wasn't like that in Charlotte. You know, the, what I did see in Charlotte was bigger shows and, um, or, you know, there was there were the, the, the high school bands that couldn't really play, and then there were the big giant rock shows, and there wasn't anything like, you know, just good solid indie band playing, you know, for 75 people. Yeah. Um, so that was sort of the beginning of it. And then, uh, you know, I fell in with a group of people that were, um, some of whom were from Winston-Salem. Um, I was in a band for a number of years with Jonathan Milner, who got out of music. Uh, you, you might not know Jonathan because he's been out of the music scene for so long, but he, uh, he and his wife, Carrie, are the Camino people. Oh, okay. Um, Jonathan was a great front man. He was absolutely huh. great. Um, but more than a great front man, he was, um, he was, uh, he had his, uh, was very tuned into the local scene, big fan of, uh, Mitch Easter and the DBs and all that stuff that I didn't know anything about. Um, and then, you know, he was, he was the guy, I mean, we've all had the guy, um, you know, I didn't have an older brother, so he was the guy that turned me on to Velvet Underground and, uh, Big Star and just all these classic iconic bands that I didn't know anything about at the time. Mm-hmm. So, um, anyway, so there were guys like that. Um, but there was a, quite a little scene of college bands, you know, that whole Southern jangle pop thing in the eighties. Um, that was totally new to me and places like Ziggy's and, uh, there were a couple other clubs around here that were having, uh, bands and, you know, just went out and soaked up as much as we could and played as many gigs as we could. Uh, so that was a pretty exciting scene, late 80s, early 90s. A lot of these bands, are they original? Or are they all- oh, these are all original bands. All original yeah, bands. Yeah, I mean, you know, we'd all play some covers here and there. But these, yeah, definitely. Yeah. Um, I, You know, it's, I don't really remember that many cover bands back then. There were bands, there were bands that would come in and play the frat parties. Um, you know, some guys that were probably way younger than me now that we all thought of as, as old guys coming in with... Hawaiian shirts and playing ZZ Top covers and whatever it was. But that, you know, that was kind of an anomaly. You know, there were a bunch of young original bands and that was, that was the whole thing. Hmm. That's interesting to hear. Oh yeah. I I, I guess I've never really thought about it either, but I, yeah, I guess my dad was in, I think like a top 40 band back in the, I don't know when, but uh, I guess in some original bands around then too, but I I don't really know when cover bands started to be like as much of a norm as original bands. Yeah, yeah, it's a good question, and I you know, um, there in in a lot of ways I sort of divide my life between before New York and after New York, and when I came back from New York, that whole scene that I've now somehow found myself peripherally in for the last twenty years, um, I don't really remember anything like that before. I'm sure there was, you know, there were clubs around here you know usually had a z in the name you know cruisers or boomers or whatever they were you know places that we knew were out there and there were probably beach bands and but i i didn't know anything about those places so that definitely didn't have anything to do with i i think you're right i think even as divided as things are now there's still a lot more flow you know even people that are serious indie music people they know where those bands are and, and, you know, just because a lot of them are restaurant kind of things, you know, you can find yourself 
moving back and forth. You see those bands, but back in back in the eighties, uh, no, I just it was kind of a wall between all that. Yeah, which was good, but you know, it was a different scene. So either before New York or when you got back, there are a lot of a lot of venues, a lot of places to play. In Winston, yeah. Well, the funny thing is, you know, the that time period when I was doing the the the, the 80s thing, uh 92 to 95, I was on the road 5 6 days a week. Mm. So, I was a little outside the scene um at that point. So, I I can't speak to that time period. Um leading right up to that, there was a great place, um a great place called the Screamin' Deacon here in town that uh, actually got sued by Wake Forest and mm. had to change the name, but that was um that was like the perfect melding of the quintessential uh, pizza parlor punk joint and a bigger indie club. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was a great scene. A lot of the bands around here um, were heavily involved in that scene in the early 90s. And that was going on when I started hitting the road in 92 or so. Um, so there was still a strong scene around places like that. Um, from 95 on, I kind of missed that whole thing. Uh, 95 to 2001, um, people talk about a lot of great bands that were coming through here then, and I, I missed out on a lot of that. And that was, uh, making sure I'm getting the story straight, was that when you were in New York? That was New York for yeah. me, 95 to 2001. 2001, yeah. okay. So 2001, you come back, and you say that you were, you still kind of considered yourself in a New York touring band. Now, was that... Did that mean that at the time you intended on doing your shows in the New York area? Well, we were kind of, yeah, but we were also sort of intending to kind of, you know, we had played down here before. Um, You know, moving down here would allow us to kind of, you know, expand the base a little bit. We weren't doing a whole lot of serious touring. Yeah. Uh, But but for for a New York band, we kind of were. You know, that's that's kind of a funny thing. You know, New York is, is such... A transportation nightmare that that lots and lots of New York bands never play outside of New York. I remember when that whole explosion of all those Williamsburg bands in the 2000s, um, you know, hearing a lot of interviews with, you know, the next strokes, you know, about all these bands. And they're like, well, so what have you been doing? Where have you been playing? New York. <laughs> like, you know, these bands that you were hearing about, they never actually played a gig outside of New York. So, mm. you know, any any touring is, you know, a little bit of an anomaly from New York. Yeah, that is, uh, I can't even wrap my head around it, but yeah, that makes sense. And so I guess when you came down here, you're thinking of maybe trying to do more of the East coast up and down a little bit. Yeah. Uh, so at that point, so did, so I guess, did you do, did you start with doing a lot of the East coast or did you start kind of fizzled out at that point? Yeah. Um, primarily because we were actually starting to do a lot more production stuff at that time. I mean, when, yeah, once you get into production stuff, that really becomes, it can be a job. For real. And, and it, was, it was really exciting because we had been in a very small, well, we were actually in a, what was a pretty big apartment for Brooklyn, but, um, you know, still pretty small real estate. And when we came down and took over uh, John Fifner's studio, which is actually, coincidentally, uh, four doors down from where I live now, hmm. um, you know, we had, it was a whole giant house. Right. Uh, I was like, wow, we can do anything here. This is amazing. <laughs> drums and, you know, everything. So Two sets of drums. Yeah. yeah. But I have to say, um, the, the, you talk about scenes. When I was in New York, uh, the, the thing I've left out about wanting to come back down here, uh, I was dating Molly, uh, my wife now. Molly 
worked um, with the downtown Winston-Salem uh, folks, or what was what, what that was at the time, uh, there were four people who were just starting to head up sort of the downtown revitalization that, that's been going on for a long time and put on events and some of these things that seem like old hat now, the Live at Five and things like that. Those were just starting to get going. And the, the people that were doing that were it was Molly, Richard Emmett, uh, Brian Cole, and uh, John Bumgarner, and there were some other great folks that came through, uh, but those four uh, were the main ones. Um, at that time, Richard was uh, hosting some smaller shows, and he had just started talking about this new space down on Trade Street that he was going to open up, and um, they put on, one of the biggest things they did, I don't know if you ever heard about this, a lot of people don't know about this, they put on a, a big festival called the Pop Festival, and this hmm. is this is 2001. This is when I'm thinking about coming back. And I flew down here uh, to see Molly and to go to this thing. And they had downtown Winston, uh, Mavis Staples, Alejandro Escovedo, Freedy Johnston. Uh, it just went on and on. All these amazing people right here in Winston. I come down here, Richard. I see Richard's new space that he's got over here. And we're going to have all these Americana acts. It's going to be great. Um I just I couldn't believe what was happening in Winston, and uh, all this stuff was just getting off the ground, and uh, I thought, man, I I want to be a part of this scene, you know. So that was definitely something else that was in my mind, and I was absolutely not disappointed, you know. All the things that those guys did, um, you know, I worked at the garage, I tended bar for a while when I was uh, first back here, um, and it was family, it was great, and you know, all these, you know, every week it was. Hayes Carl, or, um, you know, just all these great singer-songwriters coming in every week, and um, it was just an amazing scene. Mm -hmm. So that was that was a very exciting time to be back, coming I didn't, back to Winston. Yeah, I didn't know about that festival. That's, uh, that's pretty impressive to hear about. So, okay, so you came back, it sounds like, just as what I, like, what I hear about as maybe the, the heyday that was yeah. a little before my time yeah. was blooming and was starting to come into existence. Yeah. So when did you start... When did I guess is that when playing a lot in town and like forming different bands is that when all that stuff started? Yeah, to kick in? I was a kid in the candy store when I came back. Yeah, and, you know, a lot of it was reconnecting with musicians that I hadn't seen in a long time. You know, I remember talking to, um, you know, Lee and Susan Terry, for instance, were, were folks that I had met a little bit back in the day, but I didn't know very well. Um, and you know, just coming in and, and getting reacquainted with them a little bit. Well, what are you doing? Well, I'm thinking about starting a band and, you know, just different people. And there were so many exciting people that I wanted to, to play music with. And um, so I just I just kind of wanted to, you know, I had a lot of energy then. And I just really wanted to, um, really wanted to get the, the new life started, you know, down here. Yeah. Um, and, you know, we I had a couple of ideas in my pocket. You know, in New York, there was a... Uh, uh, a thing that we used to go see called the Losers Lounge. And what they would do, tell me if this sounds familiar, uh, they had sort of a core house band, and then all their friends would come in, and they'd, you know, sing. They'd pick a they'd pick an artist or a topic, and they'd put on this show. And it was, it was just fun. It was a networking thing. You know, they always said, and this is the way I always thought of it, and you'll laugh at this now, knowing how my life turned out, but it was sort of a, a cover band project for people who hated cover bands. Mm. Um, it was just a chance for everybody to kind of get together and, you know, 
probably badly play some iconic music <laughs> and you know play it very tongue in cheek and um, so anyway that became the Vagabond Saints and that was just another way of sort of um, just jump starting my angle my little corner of a of the bigger community you know yeah so so the Vagabond Saint Society does that one go pretty far back in your uh, in your time. Since you've been back in Winston. Yeah, almost uh, within a couple of years uh, after I came back from New York. Um, there were a couple of things. We did, uh, um, I used to play, uh, you know, Jerry Chapman and I used to play in each other's bands. And we used to do a, a variety of things back then. Um, but he, I guess it was, excuse me, I guess it was his idea that um, he wanted to play Rubber Soul at Rubber Soul. Mm. I don't know if you remember Rubber, yeah. the, the, the bar over there. So we did that under under his band's name, um, and then we did a uh, we did another similar project. And our friend Mitchell Snow came in and said, "You know what? Um, oh no, no, he, he gave us the name, but it was at some point we just said, you know, we'd done a couple of these little weird little cover cover an album kind of things. Let's just have a blanket name for it and do it like the the Losers Lounge, where we could do anything we want to do, but we'll give it a name and we can bring different people in and." Um, so yeah, that happened within a couple of years of coming back from New York. Yeah. All right. So now you've got the Vagabond Saint Society, you've mm -hmm. got yourself and mm -hmm. then what other band, what are your other primary bands right now? Yeah. Uh, well the Magnolia Green is kind of my primary original music focus okay. right now. Yeah. Um, I'm doing that and, uh, I put out a solo album. This is the first time I'd put out a full on solo album in years and years, um, uh, did that sort of during the pandemic just you know another one of those albums that sort of came out and you know during the pandemic and you know did what it did but yeah. you know uh, wasn't really a chance to go out and promote it or anything like that um so i did that i've got another i've got another weird little uh solo album project coming out soon um so i've got those things going on magnolia green um, you know, then there's all that stuff on the, the working band side, really, which is now just the plaids. Um, I fill in with other folks and pick up gigs and this and that, but, um, I still do some solo shows, some solo acoustic shows, um, really primarily is, um, that's a, a nice, it's just a nice thing to have in my pocket, um, you know, in terms of kind of job security really you know that's something i can go do by myself anytime you know if bands are breaking up bands are on hiatus i can always go out and and, and play solo shows and uh, so i do i like to have a few of those on the calendar yeah um but I'm, i i you know i'm a pretty severe introvert and just the idea i watch some of my friends just go um you know just walk into a cold room with nobody knows them they don't know anybody Maybe it's original, maybe it's cover, but it's they're not necessarily there to see them. Mm -hmm. It's just nothing more terrifying than that to me. Um, I do I do a fair amount of that, and uh, you know it generally works out fine. But that's that's uh, not my favorite kind of gig. Yeah. All right. Well, let me ask you this: When I started playing downtown, uh, there were I don't know. I'll just say more places to play than there are now. Yes. Uh, uh, you know, there were, 
there were people for there were clubs for people at my level at the time, which was just like, you know, we'll give you a shot and you can you can waste right. everyone's time here or something. Right, right. And then there were clubs where if you were a little bit more serious about your craft, you could start playing those places and you kind of work your way up to some bigger rooms. Right. Now, to me, I don't know, I'm not really downtown as much, but it felt like, to me, like two years ago, it was it pretty much once once the garage went away mm-hmm. and some other places stopped either existing or having music, uh, it turned into a, a bigger disparity, I mm-hmm. guess, from one end to the other. Yep. Is that your impression of it? Oh, definitely. I think you're absolutely right. I think, you know, the business has changed over the years, Um but I think the one thing that we could always depend on was that there was a certain, there was a hierarchy. There was a ladder. You knew what you needed to do, and you might not be able to get to the next level, but you knew what you needed to do. You played this club until, you're, until you were good enough to move on and until you had proven that you could bring an audience, and then you moved up to this club. And then you got an opening spot at this club, there was a there was a pathway, yeah. um, and right now the infrastructure is just shot for original music around here. There's just nothing, and that's you know it's it's the pandemic, but it was certainly heading that way before the pandemic. Yeah, you know a small town like this, it doesn't take much um, to fill those gaps, but right now there's nothing, and it it it's it's a shame. It's a big shame, and I think. Uh, you know, any musician I know has been having this conversation for the last couple of years. You know, we we need another garage. We need another Muddy Creek type place, a, a listening room. Um, we need a good 100-person rock club. Yeah. Um, you know, Monster Cade is great, um, but it's, you know, a very small stage, and it's a certain, you know... Uh, they it's not going to work for everybody. Yeah, I think they have a brand kind of that they like to yeah. keep, you know? Um so that I mean, and all more power to them. I don't care, but right. I, I think that means that they don't. Uh, they're not really trying to have like every artist in town play there. They like to kind of keep things right, a sure. certain vibe, and that's cool. Um, but I mean, I think even before coronavirus, it was like there was a, there's been a big change since things, especially the arts, are being so digitized, and like everything mm-hmm. is moving to digital models as yeah. heavily as they are. You know. Uh, Music isn't the only live experience that is suffering from modern times or whatever, but it's definitely one of them. And it does stress me out sometimes because I, I was telling, um, I don't know if it was Kyle or or Josh, I think it must've been Josh that, uh, Josh Shelton that, you know, like the night when I, the first night Richard booked me to play for, uh, to open for Lee Terry was when I met y'all met you and Lee and it was just like a doorway opened to this world that people had been in already. Like there'd been already all this foundation laid in a music scene. Yeah. All these people had been playing to all these people. And then when you got to do stuff like this, when I got to share a night with Lee, it was just like, wow, I'm welcomed. I'm welcomed into this space Mm -hmm. where people are really enthusiastic about music. I don't, I don't know what that looks like anymore. Uh, I know that, I know that there's a lot of people spending a lot of time, uh, manipulating the digital space to try to sort of have a digital version of that same experience. But I don't mean like opening, I just mean socializing through the internet, but within our Winston Salem community, it just doesn't feel like we have those like 
those pl- uh, almost almost said places of worship like sarcastically, right. but you know what I mean. Those, Absolutely, those places of congregation to to kind of you know do that stuff with one another anymore. Well, I, you know what I think the good news is, um, and I've you know over many years I've heard variations of these these conversations. Winston is a small enough town that it's it's analogous to a just a it's a small sample size here you know if if we were having this conversation about boston or new york or whatever we could talk about well there are only nine places here as opposed to 27 10 years ago whatever winston we only need one or two good venues yeah um one or two the difference between one or two venues changes the entire scope and uh vibe of the entire scene so um, the bad news is it, it's really bad now. There's nothing. Yeah. There's nothing. And, and that was why I was, you know, I was really trying to push our show at uh, 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 Gas Hill last week and, and really talking that up, not just for us and that show, but I think it's really vital right now that um, the Gas Hill shows are successful because that is really, especially on a more singer-songwriter uh, roots music kind of vibe. It's it's the only place. It's the yeah. only place for original music um, that is dedicated to that. I mean, there there are other people in town that are uh, supportive in theory of that sort of thing, and we appreciate all those other venues too. But it's the only one that exists for that purpose, and you need that purpose driven venue to create the church that you're talking about. I mean, it's it's you know there are other bars that can do things or non-traditional spaces that can have things, but you don't get the community scene. You don't get the church unless you have a purpose-driven venue. But the yeah. good news is we're only one venue away from that. You know, I mean, it, it hasn't happened. <laughs> one we, venue we're waiting away. and waiting. One venue away from having two venues. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. yeah. But I mean, I think that, you know, Gas Hill is always going to be a, a half venue. Yeah. Just because... You know, we, I've talked about this with Richard and Andy. I mean, it's a wonderful room, and it's great. But in, unless and until they know what's going on in the big room, they can't really book out. Right. You know, you can't really. Yeah, which we I, I need to mention, like, uh, of course, I support those guys. I'm not, like, disparaging the Ramcat anyway. I love right. the Ramcat. But uh, especially the way things have gone for me so far in, in Gas Hill, I can't I can't pull enough people to play the big room at Ramcat right now. Right. And, uh I've I've played two shows at Gas Hill in the last few months. Yeah. And I like that room, but yeah, it's just uh it's a very different presentation because I and I don't know, I don't know what uh, I don't know what consumers of music and enthusiasts of music feel about it, but I yeah. think that it's something to do with like uh I I don't know if it's something to do with this or not, but sometimes in the room it feels like what uh the way it compares to the garage as a space, the garage still was able to accomplish kind of taking somebody who could pull 50 to 150 people. Right. And that felt like a, a, a big, that felt like an appropriately sized audience and sort of a, a full room. Right. With fewer people. Right. And I don't know if it's that people just don't associate gas Hill with that. Or if it's, uh, if, if a stage would help, I don't know what the deal is. I don't know what the difference is. Cause the, the room itself is not all that fucking different. I, I think you said it right there. I think the problem is it's just a, a little bit of an identity crisis because until it's very difficult for them to be able to really full heartedly promote that room, uh, and book out shows 
when until they know what's going on in the big room mm-hmm. because then it's one room is competing with the other right um you, you can't i mean it would you know if you book a show up there and then two weeks later they book the drive-by truckers in the big room you know that that doesn't do anybody any good so i i think it's i think it's just been really difficult for them to full-heartedly throw themselves behind the idea of promoting that room as a full-on standalone music venue and i think that trickles down to uh the public uh perception of it i think it still absolutely serves a great purpose yeah and, it, and it, it's wonderful and it, it's the only place uh, really the only game in town um but until you get a venue that has um you know the garage was a church going back to the, the same idea and people knew people knew what they were going to see there and they would actually come out to see shows that they didn't know anything about because their friends were gone they knew that it was part of the scene um you know it, it was a place to go and it had a i don't want to use the word brand but it had a it had a vibe it had a sensibility and, yeah um we need that yeah i mean churches look that way for a reason you're and when they don't you definitely notice it uh, yeah. back when i used to be in churches occasionally <laughs> yeah. and uh you know some of them have really pure white walls and like stained glass windows and by just standing in it you feel like you're in like the the ghost version of nature or the ghost version of you know some kind of it, it feels like you're a ghost sort of yeah <laughs> and then when you go to a church where you're just in a basement and it's got like, you know, drop ceiling and fluorescent lights. You're like, this isn't really a church, is it? Like yeah. I will, I will listen to this guy talk, but I'm not really having an immersive experience right, right now. I'm not really convinced that I'm in some kind of thing that feels like heaven. Yeah. And I think that's kind of what we're talking about. Not necessarily against gas Hill, but just right. what the garage was, was like a place that was every, every bit of it supported the immersive nature of yeah. the music that you were going to hear that night. It was propped up on this thing and there were these giant speakers over your head and this big right. ass fan whirling around and it was 110 degrees inside. And all you could do was look forward because that was the only place where there was right. appropriate light. Uh, you know, and I think that's, I don't know. That's just like why that room was such yeah, a the, glory, the, the, glorious the aesthetics, thing. the logistics, uh, the, the physicality of the space is is hugely important but more important than that it's just it's the people it's the community and it takes a while for a room to develop that kind of community yeah um, that you know that you know that your people are going to be there um or or you know that there's a people that you want to be a part of you know um, yeah. a room that's um gonna you know i think a, a place like the garage it could have looked like anything it could have been drop down ceilings and fluorescent light you know because the people they were booking the people that came to see those shows it still would have had maybe not the fluorescent light but <laughs> you know it's still it's more about the, about the people and the vibe you know it definitely is but i think uh, a room can go a long way to support yeah. that association and that sort of like i say immersiveness i guess of yeah. it. Uh, the belief in it because yeah. i mean that's kind of what it is it's it kind of like being obsessed with going to see live music is kind of a, an experience sort of like that. Like yeah. it, it can be a bit of a, a conviction, you know, uh, something that you do. I mean, that's what pe- people go to church every weekend too. Like it's something yeah. that people used to do every weekend. But and <laughs> right. so anyway, as we talk about this, I still just, I know that we won't 
we're not going to come to some conclusion about the impact of the internet and what it means about live yeah. music right now, but I think we'd be remiss to not just acknowledge that as still a part of the, Absolutely. the issue as well. It's not just like, well, the garage closed and then like Winston-Salem changed for everyone. It was, yeah. like, you know, Spotify also happened within that same amount of time. Like pe- yeah. people's numbers uh, of streams started skyrocketing compared to album sales, like a, the whole landscape of music changed. And I still wonder if, uh, if the problem at hand is, is not the other way around, you know, it's like, I wonder sometimes if it's that we don't have as many venues because, uh, because there's just not as much of a physical demand for music because we're so capable of immersing ourselves with it constantly because we have our phone on us constantly and that's where we experience music at. Absolutely. Oh, I think that's absolutely true. But there are, I think, other mitigating factors that that, that are, have been happening in our culture and economy in, in a while. And, you know, uh, uh, real estate values in, in a mid-sized city like this, that, mm-hmm. you know, that has an impact on that. I mean, it used to be at least relatively affordable for a young entrepreneur to get a space and, and to do something with it. And that's you know, it's not, not quite the same way anymore. You know, it's, it's the same story. When I moved to New York, you know, everybody was still talking about the, you know, late seventies and eighties when you could, you know, all these places were downtown and you could, you know, musicians and artists could afford to live downtown and, and they all got together and they created scenes and they created things that happened. You know, by the time I got there, um, you know, rents were skyrocketing. I could never afford to live in, I never lived in Manhattan. Um, so you, you didn't see these, collectives of people um going around you saw all the classic clubs uh were all getting shut down for for real estate issues and i I think some of that's still going on you know in Mm -hmm. in in a accelerated way right now even in a town like winston-salem where downtown real estate is insanely expensive right now um it's just you know i would love to see something i've heard a lot of conversations over the last couple years i think people are trying to do this people are considering these things but there are going to be considerable obstacles to, to putting a venue in place now that weren't there 10 years ago. Yeah. So I, I hope someone's going to come along with deep pockets and, and good convictions and uh, get us out of this mess. Yeah. But, but we got a mess right now. Do you like the, uh, I mean, I'm guessing as a producer who, and you've already kind of said that you were really on the early side of digital production stuff, been able mm. to kind of embrace that and make it work to your advantage. Uh, on the other side of that, like the music putting out thing, as it compares to what it was like right when I started making music, that was, I mean, even using disc makers, I think was pretty new at that right. time, uh, which is, you know, which was the company that everybody used at the time to produce their physical CDs. And then pretty soon it switched to just, uh, you know, I mean some, you know, plenty of people, especially larger scale people are still producing vinyl or CDs, uh, because some people want that medium. But for the most part, the most natural thing to do is either put out a single or an EP or a CD, put it straight to Spotify and all the streaming stuff. Oh man. Yeah. Do you you like that? Is that beneficial for you or do you like the Mm. CD thing? That's a ongoing conversation. Uh, I have variations of this conversation every other day. Um, you know, blessings and curses. Um, you know, I'm at the even with my own music now. Um, you know, this I've released the last couple things that I've put out have been the first digital only things that I've done. You know, there's a uh, 
a sense of freedom that comes along with that. Um, everything is so anarchic now. Um, you know, again, talking about how we were talking about venues, there, there used to be a ladder. We knew what we had to do. Um, and now those old touchstones are gone. It's hard to know what to do. You got to know your audience. You know, certainly I'm, I'm obviously, uh, older and there are folks in my peer group, uh, listening audience, uh, that still do buy physical copy. Um, you know, personally, uh, I'm all about the physical copy. I mean, I, we all tell the stories about, you know, going and buying the, the vinyl when you were a kid and, you know, pulling out the liner notes and you know, the physicality of the product was always a part of the experience. Yeah. Um, and I miss that. I think you know, a lot of us miss that. Um, not just uh, old timers, but, you know, I think a lot of us miss that. You know, I'm looking over and I see your Tom Waits box set and all these <laughs> things. And, you know, I love this stuff. Yeah. Uh, you know, um, I did an album recently with um, uh, a local artist named Tony Dagnall. And um, he is a guy, it's a long story, won't get all into that, but he, um, um, he had had his dreams deferred for a long time to put out a, a, a significant uh, project. Mm. And I knew that he was planning on, uh, he had high hopes for um, physical output and how he was going to do it. But when I finally saw the album that we had been working on for a couple of years, um, and he did a, a dual gatefold album with inserts and booklets. And it was, it was an unbelievable work of art. And it was the, definitely the most advanced um, physical product uh, of any of my studio clients uh, anybody's ever done. And I was so proud of that. Mm. You know, I had nothing to do with the packaging, nothing to do with that. But when I, you know, and I was immensely proud of the, the music. But seeing that product for the first time, uh, wow, it just really made me feel part of something even bigger than all the hard work that we had put into it before. And I think that's, that's something that's lost in the straight to Spotify age. And mm -hmm. um, that's, that's not a controversial thought. You know, I think we all would like to be able to go back to that sort of thing. But, you know, um, that's expensive, you know. Anybody can do a digital-only release now. We could go over here. I see that gear sitting over there. We can, you and I can make a song in five minutes and have it on Spotify. Yeah. You know, by tonight. Um, that's kind of awesome, you know. Um, so we're we're just kind of living in another world in between, and it it I, I do feel that sometimes it lends a an ethereal uh, aspect to the whole project that sort of undercuts the uh, undercuts the idea of commitment artistic commitment you know I, I think as artists we all love the idea of freedom and being able to move back and forth and working quickly and you know off the cuff that sort of um, that sort of innovation is is exciting but I think you know we're all craftspeople too and you know, when you think about the, the time and effort um, that most of us put into a project, then to just sort of click a switch and send it off into the ether is just, uh, it's a little disconcerting sometimes. Yeah, it is. I remember the first time 
that I got an, an, a CD, like, actually pressed through Disc Makers. Yeah. My friend Diana Caldwell did the artwork. And yeah. Just seeing it, seeing, like, a professional artist do that, like, interpret mm-hmm. your whole, your musical art. And, yeah. And interpret it uh, visually. Yeah. And then the expertise of just thinking of it as, the, uh, you know, uh, the experience of a CD packaging or whatever. I was just, that was a really exciting thing to, to see that come together and to actually like take pride in it and mm-hmm. shit like that and get to see different interpretations, different options. Yeah. And I'm, I guess, you know, and of course everybody knows that everybody knows that if you, if you don't do that, then you don't get to have that experience. I guess somebody would say that, you know, with whatever the canvases and the, you still get to do imagery and. I've tried to figure out a bunch of different ways to do digital booklets or something yeah. on my website to yeah. see if that would be worth it. But yeah, I don't know, man. Sometimes it does. It just feel, I don't know. I, I bitch with some of my friends about this a lot that it's just, it's not really, I don't know how to, I don't know what I'm trying to say exactly. It's, uh, as, as interesting as an idea you, that, that you want to try to come up with to give people this, personal experience of your art and make it a special thing for the most part it seems like people just expect it to be in the place mm-hmm. where they expect music to show up for nine dollars a month right and it's just a part of that whole package that yeah. they get and it's kind of hard to go against that expectation as much as it's as much as it's so much more satisfying to to do it up larger mm-hmm. uh you know what's what is what is the outcome going to be if, yeah. if be, like are you going to decide between an outcome? I mean, I just did this actually. I just released an, an LP on my website, uh, like seven songs yeah. and I only released three of them on Spotify knowing that like way fewer people were going to get to experience the LP and right. way fewer people did a yeah. handful of people did, but way, way fewer compared to those who spun the, the three songs. And that's like, a bummer. I wish that more people mm-hmm. could have got to hear the seven songs, but that was just an experiment. I wanted to see what would happen, you know. Totally with you, and I think you used a good word there. Um, larger, I think. I think packaging, artwork, all the things that we used to take for granted being associated with a musical project. These are all ways of enlarging um, whatever the the piece of art is, and I think. Um, without those things uh it is diminished a little bit but what i would say one of the positive uh experiences i think over the past five ten years is and and you've been involved in this as well is the return and maybe you don't remember but there was a long time when no one but no one was doing video work Mm. Uh, video work was kind of a nasty word and and honestly before the age of iPhone video, it was it was still kind of out of the reach of mm-hmm. a lot of people, uh, a lot of people's uh, capabilities to talk about doing videos and video projects and films and that sort of thing. Um, but a lot of people, uh, two of us definitely, um, have been kind of coming back to that a little bit. And I think that's just, for some people, that's a little sideshow, um, something to help sell some records. Something, you know, nobody wants to listen to music on YouTube, but if there's a video associated with it, you know, what do right. you, I hate when people just give me audio now and then I'm like, well, how am I going to, how can I, I can't put <laughs> this I on social media. Stare at this all day? Lyrics, videos, or psycho? Whatever, right? Yeah. 
Um, but I think videos have, have become a, a new viable way of enlarging projects again. And I think that's, if there's anything to be said about where we are right now, I think that is somewhat exciting. Yeah. And it's another way to sneak in design. Right. Uh, and, and whether it's textual design, um, sneak in your album cover at the beginning or whatever. I mean, it's another way to expand the uh, the impact of what it is what you're doing musically yeah to be creative with it too yeah I, I mean I, I love video I love that YouTube exists uh, yeah it it is really interesting how how much we all refuse to pay for anything YouTube when I think people use it probably 200% more than we mm-hmm. do Netflix and yep. other shit like that but uh, but you know those ads pop up like hey you want to chip in a few dollars and it's like hell no no i, I know <laughs> i know it's crazy you know it's like you you were talking about about how people experience it, it, the genie's just kind of out of the bottle with a lot of that stuff and people are going to what they're willing to pay for and and how they're willing to uh, consume um, consume content do we actually have to use the word content i guess um, it's going to it's going to follow the market. It really will follow the market. We can tell everybody to go to Bandcamp Friday all day long, and some will, but, right. you know, it's, it, to me, it's like the same conversation with vinyl. I love vinyl. You know, we all talk about vinyl. Vinyl's great. Um, and for a certain small group of people, it is a real viable thing. Mm-hmm. I buy records. You probably buy records. In the larger market, it's... It's a fun thing to talk about, but that's that is not that really has very little impact on how musicians actually are going to live now. Mm-hmm. I mean, there there are certain people that can sell vinyl, and um, you know, but pretty much everybody I know that is actually making vinyl, you know, they're praying to recoup those costs. Well, yeah, they're probably actually paying for the vinyl. Yeah, you know, unlike I guess if if there was a third party involved who were really handling those costs, and then all you were making was whatever was, uh, yeah. you know, your portion of what sold. Now artists are having to come up with that, like $5,000 up front. Yeah. So then they're making a very small portion until they, until they make that shit back. Yeah. Well, they're making a small portion after they make that shit back, I guess. If they do. <laughs> yeah, if they do. I've got boxes and boxes of CDs in my basement, by the way, over from the last 20 years. We'll if have you, to trade If you need time. any uh, <laughs> coasters or whatever. <laughs> Uh, yeah, my last one I have, I didn't, I didn't, I ordered very few of them cause I could see it coming. Yeah. It just didn't, uh, yeah, I've, I've been hanging on to a lot of them for a long time. So what is your outlook? The next thing you put out? Well, I love putting out CDs, but it just don't make sense. Uh, everybody I've been talking to the other musicians that are trying to figure out what's going on in the world. I mean, it, it looks like, it looks like algorithmic al- algorithmic value is more important than anything you have to say or anything mm. that you do um which sucks mm-hmm. i don't know if you identify with this at all but when i was 21 and 23 or whatever i i did believe that there was a little bit more of a meritocracy involved with mm. music yeah and and like that it mattered for you to put out good music. <laughs> this is something that's devastating to me, actually. I'm glad, I'm glad you asked me this. I don't know what the rules are because, like, every month or so, some new person, it's bad music, I think, has become an, an actually, like, an, an intentional business model. Like, <laughs> somebody will put up, I remember a few months ago, 
this page I follow on Instagram that like makes fun of like silly things that pop up in music posted this video. I thought it was amazing. Uh, terrible, terrible music. Yeah. So I went to the YouTube channel, this like, from what I could tell rich girl, maybe in California or something, somebody yeah. had paid for her to make like three or four music videos. Yeah. Really bad. Yeah. I caught it on the early side. I caught it when it was like at 10,000 views or something. Yeah. Her Instagram, I think, was at like 400 or 600, like very low numbers. Yeah. I watched it over the course of two more days, and I watched the views go up like way past the hundreds of thousands, and uh, her Instagram following just get bigger and bigger. And it, and it was all people, uh, you know, it was all a big joke. It was all people knowing that this was like a terrible yeah. song that was horrible, and yeah. like everybody's in on the joke. And she kind of, I don't know if she was in on it or not, but she she kept like being like, oh, I'm so happy that the song is right. getting all these views. At a certain point, it doesn't even matter what the intention was. Yeah. <laughs> and I can't, I can't sign up for that. I can't yeah. sign up to participate in something where like stuff that is shocking or hilarious or cringy, yeah. like these things are what work algorithmically, yeah. but somebody's attempt to make something creative mm. and quality doesn't in, in the algorithm. So, I don't know, man. I don't know what the hell to do. I I think that's why right now, I think that's why right now my focus is more on my community and like trying to think about what it would take for Winston-Salem to have a strong music scene and talking to people like you about that and mm -hmm. other artists. That's honestly all I know to do is, yeah. is to, uh, to think about my immediate community more than like the international music consumer industry. Right. I'm still going to put shit out and I'm going to like try to put out the best shit I can, but, and, and I'm not gonna, I can't afford for it to cost me a ton. So I can't afford to put out vinyl or CDs right, right. now. So I will put out shit digitally, but as far as who I'm going to market to, I just don't think I see myself being somebody who's going to strive to get, you know, hundreds of thousands of streams within yeah. my first week of putting something out. If it, if I have to do it that way and if I don't right. have the budget to, to make the fucking music videos that like, and, and these guys are amazing, but if I don't have the budget to make music videos like fucking Kendrick Lamar or Travis Scott or different people like that, yeah. which I don't, yeah. then I might just have to accept that. Like I, I've got a bit of an uphill battle on my hands for a long, long time, maybe until right. I die. <laughs> well, that's the best I can tell you, Doug. Let let this old guy tell you it's it's possible to live that way and and uh, have a satisfying life. Yeah, I, I you know listen. The I think the the great story of my life musically is that I have been lucky enough to be able to almost always do exactly what I want, but never ever have had the success that makes me have to worry about any of these things. Mm. I, I, you know, the marketing, uh, you know, I, I, especially with my studio clients, I pay attention to the market. I pay attention to, um, you know, what, what an artist has to do these days, but I just can't get too worked up about it. Yeah. And you know, when you talk about, um, you know, your intention as an artist, how much you care, how much work you're going to put into it, that's just never been on the table for me. I'm always going to do, what I'm going to do. Yeah. Um, and I think I, it makes me fa sad when I see some younger artists these days so focused on algorithms and, 
um, just the market of, of the internet that they are making musical decisions. Yeah. Based on that. And I, I see that all the time. A hundred percent agree with that. I, I, I think I said that to Shelton too. I like I now these platforms have become so important to everyone, especially like I don't know, people who well, in an industry like music where that's how you market things and the old ways are kind of different. Uh there's a real temptation to make things that specifically just appeal to people because of those platforms. Right. Like because they will be uh viral, or not viral, but because they'll have there'll be good support for some kind of TikTok you want to make, or there'll right. be, uh, it'll be a really aesthetically pleasing Instagram thing. And it'll appeal to people of this demographic. Like you can be real fucking scientific about it if you want to, but yeah. that's not my goal. My, my goal has been to continue to write songs for the reasons that I always have, which has kind of been to investigate my own mind and, and stuff. And yeah. th- there is a weird line there because I do still make stuff public, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm still doing something right, that's sure, visible. Yeah. But I like to think that I, I do it for the sake of putting out good art rather than for uh, generating a lot of, uh, you know, like social media activity right. kind of thing. I think those two, because anyway, last, last word on this because I think I jumped in the middle of a thought you were having. But uh, I think like the social media thing, that's kind of an immediate dopamine thing mm-hmm. as far as I understand it I think there's like a real neurological thing going on there whereas I, I don't think that's the same as when you put out a, mu- a, a piece of music that took you a year to produce yeah. or whatever it's not exactly a not exactly a real quick hit yeah no 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 it, or a hit at all sometimes but yeah you know I don't know I just I feel I feel lucky enough that my complete lack of success with original music has allowed me to continue to never <laughs> think about those things. That's like when uh, when Tom Waits got inducted to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Do you see that? <laughs> yeah. He said uh, he said they they say I've never they say I'm, I'm hard to work with and I never had a hit and they say it like it's a bad thing. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Uh, I mean, I, I think it's it's impossible not to have some level of success and and not start thinking. Uh, about audience, yeah. you know, and even in terms of uh, venues you play, I think about this all the time. I mean, I, I, I used to, we always used to joke about the, the garage about being, well, that was the one place we played yeah. and everything we wrote was for that room, you know, because you do start writing for rooms. Right. Um, and, and somebody had, had a, I remember this conversation from a long time ago. Somebody was talking about uh, Kings of Leon. Uh, I don't care one way or the other about Kings of Leon, but talking about that transition between, you know, the more indie early albums and then suddenly, you know, suddenly they're out opening for you too. And then the next album comes along and it sounds like they're playing to the back of an arena. Mm. You know, I mean, you, you, and, and, you know, you can't blame them for that. Right. You know, because you, you do think about the rooms you're playing in and who you're playing for. And if you're, you know, if you're the Avett brothers and suddenly you're playing stadiums, you know, are the same finger-picking songs going to work to the back of the arena? And and I I think they're a great example of somebody that has evolved but has managed to move to bigger rooms and bigger audiences but uh, uh, and, and, and navigate that. But I think Kings of Leon are an example of somebody that, you know, they played to the room and they became somebody else. Yeah. That's a macro example of... of, of what we're talking about, but you know, it is, it is difficult not to respond artistically to wherever you are. Right. Uh, 
Well, um, I, I wanted to ask about another thing before we start to before we start to think about wrapping it up. Uh, so COVID, yeah. So COVID hit, yeah. and you were one of the people I saw that really uh, in a in a different. I mean, I've said this twice on two different podcasts, I think, and I don't want it to sound bad when I say it. Mm-hmm. That that it kind of I found it devastating. Yeah. When people started streaming their music, yes. uh, or doing yeah, yeah, yeah. the thing on Facebook. Oh yeah. But. Oddly enough, not oddly. I mean, uh, as to be expected, you managed to do it in a way that was that <laughs> yeah. was like you, there was a lot. You made it a very interactive thing, and it was like a concert, and it was not uh, begging for money. <laughs> right, <laughs> like, right, right. Like for God's sake, please I, save my life. Yeah, uh, it was a different vibe, and I watched some years, and it was charming. And <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you. <laughs> yeah. So what? I mean, was that was that just basically uh, to keep your sanity? I was. Like like many of us, I was very very ambivalent about all that, and um, you know I think you you and I had talked previously about um, the impact of quality and quality control uh, on that sort of thing, and I think we all sort of suffered and took found our own paths over the past year. You know, some people really uh, dove into new technology and and uh, you know set up their multicams and you know, move their studio interfaces uh, into the living room and really did a, you know, did something slick. Um, but I'm kind of like you on that. I thought even the best of those, um, you know, it just left you wanting most of the time. Yeah. I mean, I love that idea. I remember, um, uh, I'm not going to mention this guy's name because controversy these days but a, a, a musician that I uh, used to admire a lot was kind of at the forefront of that I used to think oh my god this guy is just live streaming from his living room this is amazing mm. and then I never watched it you know um, you know watched it tune in every once in a while but it's the quality um, sadly I think we've gotten to a point now uh, culturally where we expect and demand that everything is making all the use of all the technology. Mm. And um, I think we've lost a little bit of, of uh, the ability to appreciate something that's more raw. And I think the live stream kind of thing was the worst of that because it wasn't raw in the sense of sitting in a room without a amp. Right. Uh, that's That's one thing. This was so much more diminished than that. You know, poor sound quality... Um, you know, fluorescent lighting, whatever. Um, so I didn't really want to get into all that. I, I I thought it was kind of fun. I enjoyed some of the uh, uh, the, the multi-tracking uh, videos that people were making. Some of those were really fun, and we you know we did a couple of those with Vagabond Saints, and I was really proud of the way they they turned out. Um, but you know the the living room things, uh, and there definitely was a lot of you know, the sense that, you know, the gimme money kind of thing, Mm -hmm. um, made it feel like a very badly produced telethon most of the time. Um, and that's Uh, fine. I mean, you couldn't blame your friends for doing that. No, not at all. Um, no, I feel for him. Um, I, and so, I mean, for real, there were some distraught people. I remember a friend of mine just being like, I'm, I remember, I remember, it's not funny at all, but just, I remember how serious it felt because everybody, the world was in shock and nobody knew what the hell to do. And a buddy of mine posted something that was just like, I'm absolutely ruined. And I was like, Jesus Christ. 
I can't imagine yeah. having 50 gigs lined up for the next three months or something, and all of them are gone. Like well, that was me. I lost at least 200 gigs last year, and but but fortunately, I live in a two-income house, and I was able to still do a lot of my studio work. And um, and the funny thing to me, and I haven't heard anybody else talk about this. Um, I think you know any of these musicians that are used to doing our taxes. You know everything's expensable. You know, and at a certain point, you start thinking. Geez, you know, I mean, really, you know, I mean, is, is, is all that stuff I'm putting on my taxes real? And then last year comes along, and all that stuff that I expense off taxes every year was off the table. You know, road food and batteries uh-huh. for pedals and all that stuff. Um, and when you took all that uh, expense off the table, yeah, I lost a lot of money last year. But I saved a lot of money, too. It mm-hmm. really, the impact was... was um, was tough on me, but it was not nearly as tough as a lot of people that I knew that were, you know, single income houses. And, um, so I, I, long way of saying I have nothing to complain about. Um, so I was definitely, you know, I needed, it was nice to make a little extra income from that, but that wasn't what I was doing it for. I saw a lot of people that needed that and that that's a different story. And, uh, I appreciate that, uh, you know, a lot of hardship went into that for mm-hmm. a lot of people. But yeah. yeah, I think for me, I did a couple of them just because I, I felt like, you know, it's, it's the old shark swimming forward thing, you know. I felt like I'm a musician. This is what I do. And if I'm not doing anything, what am I doing? So at a certain point, it was kind of like, well, you know what? I I do shows. So um I need to do what I do a little bit and just see if I can find a way uh, to make it feel human. And I, I, I don't know that I ever really got to the point where I really felt excited about it, but what tip the, the, tipped it over for me was um, the response. It, it was not, I, I'm not Josh Daniels. I didn't do shows with, you know, 9,000 people watching. But, you know, we do something and, you know, 50, 100 people would come by and and I couldn't believe the number of people that would say, you know what, on this Friday night, you know, I was going to sit around and watch some Netflix again. This almost made me feel normal. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'm not under any illusion that I was providing any great service or anybody else that was doing that was providing any kind of great service. But there was a sense that, you know, there might be 50 people having a conversation. You know, they might not even be paying attention to whatever I was playing, but it brought some people together and had some conversations. And it just... It felt like it had just enough value that it made me feel like it actually actually made me feel a little bit bad if I skipped a week for a while. I mean, even if you weren't you know, digging wells or whatever, yeah. um, that was a time where people were starving for social interaction for like for a lot of people. The, maybe the first time in their life, what their social life was changed right. and they didn't get to be around people and stuff. So, you know, I don't think it's any small thing, the idea that. Maybe it was a certain, like maybe to some degree it was at least, if, even if you weren't setting up a nonprofit organization around it, uh, you maybe you were helping people account, like uh, get to experience something that they really wanted to experience. Yeah. That's a good thing. Well, and I will say, I have the other thing about it is that um, my poor wife, uh, you know, we, uh, being a musician that, that plays all the time, you know, I'm never home at night most of the time. Mm-hmm. Um and during the pandemic, uh, you know, obviously all of our lives changed 
a lot. But uh, poor Molly had to see a lot of me on the weekends when she wasn't used to, to doing that. But, you know, our we have a, a great balance in our lives about the time that we're together and the time that we spend apart. But for me, you know, music is uh, a part of my life that, you know, is not something we do together. And uh, she was always a part of the, the live streams. So it was kind of nice mm. to be able to have something that was similar to my gig life back, but in a way that we could do it together. Yeah. So that was, that was kind of special. That so, is cool. Um, and I will miss that. Uh, but uh, we're kind of back to, back to the normal. Well, so what's, what's, what's next for you? What's the thing that, that's in the works that, uh, that's on the forefront of your mind? Well, you know, I, we were talking about this earlier, you know, coming into the winter, I've been gigging a lot. Uh, but almost all of that has been outdoor gigs. So, um, like a lot of other musicians now, um, kind of, kind of starting to bed in for the winter a little bit. I've got a few more things on the calendar. Um, I'm doing the, um, uh, playing with the Reeves house band, doing the last waltz thing, um, Saturday after Thanksgiving, but that's the last bigger project that I have. Uh, we don't have any VSS projects planned until the spring. Um, uh, most of my working band stuff is more or less shut down for the next couple of months. So, and I'm totally okay with that. Yeah. I'm ready to, you know, I'm ready to just uh, disappear into the studio for a while. I'm about halfway through another solo album, uh, working on that. Uh, I always have a lot of little side projects in the fire, but absolutely nothing that I'm here to sell. No, uh, I'm not <laughs> slogging anything at this point, but... But there's there are projects in the works. So a good deal. So, uh, but for real though, I mean, if is your stuff going to is your stuff going to the streaming platforms and shit like that right now? Your your solo project. Yeah, out? yeah, it's all up there. Um, and that, but is that under the original band name that you had mentioned? Sure, earlier? we've got some Magnolia Green stuff. In fact, I, I guess I probably should say we're about to go record. Um, I, as a producer. It's very difficult for me to take recording projects to other studios, just financially. It's hard for me to justify spending money when I could do it at home. Yeah. But with Magnolia Green, uh, I put my foot down a long time ago. I said, you know what? We can't really afford to go do all kinds of things, but let's do some EPs. So before the pandemic, the idea was that we would record a continuing series of EPs at some of the studios that I've always won, wanted to work with, some of the people that I always wanted to work with and hadn't had the chance. So that was the original idea. Uh, we recorded one right before the pandemic uh, came out during the pandemic. Um, and then obviously that kind of put a hold on the whole thing. But the second EP, uh, we're going to go to uh, the Fidelitorium with Mitch Easter in a week, this Sunday, this Sunday. Uh, so that will be uh, the second in our ongoing series of EPs. So Hell yeah. that'll be coming out. I don't know when we'll release it though. We'll see, you know, yeah. I mean, these days, you know, you record something and, um, you know, you look for the right time to release it, but it always used to be fairly easy to, to know when the right time to release something is. And now the, the, the signposts, the, the calendar markers are, uh, not the same as they used to be. So it, it'll be coming out at some point. Yeah. And probably around. straight to digital, but, uh, but hopefully we'll do some video content, something to enlarge. Cool. Um, yeah, I don't know. I we, we talk about maybe doing some CDs again. You talked about 
Diana Caldwell, she did the artwork for uh, my old Solid Citizens EPs mm-hmm. as well. And uh, I miss having something like that. She she was wonderful, and so many people doing great uh, graphic work. Um, I miss that aspect, so we'll see. Yeah. Well, man, look forward to it. Um, I think we can wrap up for today. I'm sure we'll do it again sometime. I hope Let's. so, anyway. So many more things to talk about. For sure. All right, well, that was Doug Davis. Thanks for coming over, man. Thank you, man. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Mm-hmm.